you will, take your Bible and turn it in it, turn in it to John chapter 17. And as you're turning over to John chapter 17, I have a question for you. How do you live in this world? I mean, how does a believer, how does a man or woman actually live out their faith in the midst of the world in which we live? I suppose there could be a number of options there. Some, because of the danger of the world, live in isolation. They run from it. They hide from it. They... uh, do everything they can to avoid it and avoid contact with the world, even though they live in it. Some live, number one, in isolation. Some actually, in the negative approach, assimilate into the world. In other words, they are living in this world, and they assimilate so much like the world that they no longer look distinctly different. They no longer look like a believer because they've become so like the world that they are of the world and in the world. And so some live in isolation. Some live in assimilation where it becomes so close that you lose sight even if these people still know Christ. And then there's some people, and we'll look at that today, who live missionally in the world. They're in the world for a purpose. They're here, they have a beating heart and breath they give, and they are missional in their purpose. And so Jesus even said, and we'll see that here in 1715, he says, I'm not asking the Father to take you out of the world but that you be kept from the evil one. Would you follow the reading of the scripture this morning? We're going to read John 17, 14. He says in 17, 14, he's in his high priestly prayer. He's praying to his father. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What a passage. It's this prayer as we've been studying You know, I mentioned just a moment ago, some live in isolation from the world. We know that from our own day. We know that from church history. There was an Egyptian way back in 256 AD named Antony. And he, Antony, became so disturbed because Christians no longer seemed to have a self-sacrificing spirit. He sold all of his family possessions and fled into the wilderness. He isolated himself from the world. He ate, his diary records, and those who wrote of him, once a day, that's it, and he only ate bread and salt and water. And once he made that vow, he never again changed his clothes and never again washed his face was his vow. In other words, he couldn't live no longer in the world, so he departed physically in some ways from it, and it tells us that he died at the age of 105. There was another man by the name of Abbot Discorus who once vowed not to speak for a year, then he vowed another year not to meet anyone. So one year he just said he's not going to speak. Now I know some of you parents might want your children to heed that vow, and he didn't speak, and then he vowed not to meet anyone in the year, and he kept all of them. There's another group in church history called the Dendrites. I don't know if you've heard of the Dendrites. They were a group of people that lived in trees, basing their practice on one verse in James to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So they climbed trees and lived out their existence 
in trees so they wouldn't become spotted by the world. There was another group called the grazers. They lived in the woods and they ate like wild animals. In other words, they're going to remove themselves to stay in sync with God. But my favorite of all time is a man by the name of Simeon Stylites. Simeon Stylites. He chose to live for 37 years on top of a pillar among ruins. 37 years just sitting on top of a pillar. Now that's isolation. So I'm asking you this morning as you come in, do you live in isolation on the one hand, or do you live in assimilation that you get so involved in the world that there's no distinction left? Or the question, as you're going to see this morning, are you on mission? I mean, beloved, how do you live in the world without becoming contaminated by the world? And I'm going to take you here to John chapter 17, because as Jesus prays this prayer to his Father, he's going to show us how to live on mission and how to live in this world. You know, when you open to John chapter 17, I mean, there is just literally a library of material that has been written through the centuries on John 17. The, ref the reformers had so much to say on it. The Puritans preached on John 17, 3, more than any other verse in the scripture. There are commentaries that go all the way back to the Reformation period, all the way back to the Puritan period on this text that are hundreds and hundreds of pages long just on John 17. In fact, some in the excess of just John 17 that are over 500 pages. I think part of it is John 17 is just beloved, inexhaustible. Its depth is unreachable. I mean, it is just a treasure trove of truth. Now, as we've kind of been in this chapter for a few weeks now, remember, I've broken it up into three ways, and we've said that before. He's praying for himself to glorify the Father in one through five. Then in the second section, he's praying, I want to be specific here, for his disciples, for his apostles, but certainly there's implication for us. And then thirdly, he's praying for all future believers. So he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, he prays for all future believers. Now we find ourselves in that second section that he's praying for his disciples. Now the question would come as you're reading the text, what is he praying for? What does he pray about? And he's praying to his father. And we're eavesdropping, if you will, on his prayer. And I've said weeks past that we believe that he's praying this prayer right in front of the 11. That as they're walking on their way to Gethsemane, he is in prayer and they are listening to how he prays. And so that makes this section utterly unique. There's other places in the gospel that spoke of him praying, actually in fairly short sentences. But this actually gives us the content of what he prayed for. So we're in this section, second section that he prays for his disciples. And he prays along the lines of four great truths that encourage these disciples and us as well. The reason I say us as well, glance again at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only in verse 20, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. And so he's praying for the 11 specifically, but we're captured up into that. So he's praying these four great truths to encourage the disciples as well as us, to embolden their faith, to strengthen their faith. Now we've touched on the first two of those great truths. Number one, he prays for the people that the Father gave him out of the world. He prays for the people that the Father gave him out of the world. He prays for the chosen. He prays for those who were elect. And you can't miss that. Look at verse two. He says, you have, speaking Christ praying to the Father, given him authority all over all flesh to give eternal life 
to all those you have given him. In other words, he's praying for the people that the Father gave. Look at verse 6. He said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So at least first, and we spent time on that, he's praying for the people. He's praying in this prayer, not for the globe. He's praying for you. And we talked about him even interceding in heaven for us now. But secondly, he not only prays for the people the Father gave him out of the world, he's praying for your protection in the world. This is what Christ prays to his Father about. What does he pray about? What do you pray for? Well, again, we're watching this close communion here, but he's praying for our protection. Look at verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. And here's the prayer of protection. Keep them in your name. He's praying, if you will, for your protection. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And then again in verse 12, I have guarded them. So you have in verse 11, keep them in your name. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, the ones you gave me, and I have guarded them. And we know from that text, not one of them was lost. And so he's praying for your protection, but he's really praying for and giving blessing to our eternal security. I kept them, now you keep them. As I moved to my cross, resurrection and ascension, as I was with them on this earth, while I was there, I was protecting them. But as I ascend into glory, I'll continue to pray for them. And Father, I want you to guard them. And the truth is, is not one of them was lost. And we looked at the beauty and the joy last week in verse 13 that were, do you remember? Secure in Christ. Secure, secondly, in the midst of trials. And thirdly, we're secure in God's love. And that's really where we left off. He gave us that joy. Look at verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And the joy came because of his prayer of protection in the world that I kept them and now I'm giving them to you. But this joy has another effect, and we'll pick it up this morning. He says, I have given them your word, verse 14, and the world has hated them because they are, watch this, not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In other words, I've given them my joy. I've given them, Father, your word, but the world has hated them. And then he uses that phrase, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But you live in the midst of this world. Here's back to our opening question. But the world hates us. In fact, look back just in chapter 15 for a moment. Do you remember that section there? He dealt with it there. In 15 verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore, he says, the world hates you. Remember the word that I've said to you, 1520, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so he's instructed us before on the hatred of the world. And by the world, he doesn't mean the created world. We know that. He means the world system of evil. Now, look back to John chapter 17. He's praying here. Now, now watch this. He says, I do not ask that you, speaking to the Father, take them out of the world. Here's his prayer. But that you 
keep them, stated a fourth time, from the evil one. And so he's making a request to his father. Keep the disciples, father. I'm not telling you to take them out. I'm I'm asking, requesting that you keep them from, literally the text says, the evil. But it's very clear here in the context and in the other passages that we've interpreted this as the evil one. He's not praying just over evil in general in this prayer of protection. He's praying that prayer of protection over the evil one that we know in this gospel as Satan. That he was, it says in John 8, a murderer from the beginning. We know that he does not stand in the truth. The Bible says in 8.44, there's no truth in him. And when he lies, Jesus said, 8.44, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. So he's praying for the protection of the disciples from the evil one. In fact, Paul, remember in 2 Corinthians 11.3, said, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. We know that that is his name, Satan. We know that he is an evil one. We know that he is a murderer from the beginning, but he is also a deceptive evil one in 2 Corinthians 11.3. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that he, Paul, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. There is a darkness over this world in the 21st century. He has blinded the minds of unbelieving. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that speaking of Satan, that he disguises himself, you know, as an angel of what? Of lights. He is, according to Revelation 20, the deceiver of nations. Now, beloved, you know that the devil is not some medieval um, imp, if you will, dressed in black with a pitchfork and a tail. The Bible says that the devil is a roaring, what? Lion. He's bent, bent on destroying God's work He's bent on destroying God's people. He's bent on destroying life. He's a taker of life. He's a murderer of life. This is the evil one. And so, beloved, let me make the connection here. The Lord's prayer is not to be kept from the demise politically. It's not to be kept from the demise of a nation. It's to be kept from the evil one himself. And by contrast, I would just say to us practically that we spend more time praying about our health, praying about our decisions, praying about finances, praying for our family, and praise the Lord for all of those things. But sometimes we spend more time praying about those things than we do about the threat of the evil one. And so Jesus here is praying for the people the Father gave him out of the world. He's praying specifically for our protection in the world from this evil one. Do you remember in the Lord's Prayer, certainly in Matthew 6, Jesus instructed us to pray, deliver us from evil, or literally deliver us from the evil one. Let me just say something to you as parents and family is that we will not produce spiritual giants when it fails to discern who its chief enemy is. Your chief enemy is not the school system. Your chief enemy is not politics. Your chief enemy is not necessarily your upbringing. Your chief enemy is not the drug addiction that rages in this valley. Listen, our chief enemy is the evil one. And what a, what a, just a gracious, blessed thought that the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the point, is praying for you. 
even as he intercedes at the right hand of God to be kept from the evil one. Do you remember in the context of Ephesians 6 on the armor of God, he finishes all the armor to stand firm against the devil with this in 6.18, praying at all times, praying, if you will, in the spirit. Praying, if you will, he says, in prayer and supplication, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Praise God that we have a high priest who is praying for us and God who is praying for us. Let me just make this statement to you. GCV, he is not air evacuating you out of this world. He said that in verse 15. I'm not asking to take you out of the world. He's not sending you a helicopter, a Healy, to land on a pad to get you out of this world. He's actually praying for our protection that we would be not, if you will, delivered over to the evil one. And I'll have to say something about that. Let me also say to you, <laughs> this just came to my mind. He's not wrapping you in some chemical azmet suit to preserve you from the chemicals of the world. We don't need you to be a grazier. We don't need you to be a, a dendrite. He's not putting some suit on you so that you would be protected from this world. He's, he's not taking you out of the world. Verse 15. Calvin made this distinction, and I thought it was helpful. He does not take us out of the world because if I, if I don't say this, you're going to think, ah, the evil one's after me. That, that's not necessarily the prayer, though I'll, I'll try to explain this. He's not taking you out of the world. He's delivering you from the evil one that you may not be overwhelmed. That's the point. He's praying that I kept you, I kept you, Father, keep them, you're eternally secure. He's praying that as you live out your faith, that you would not be overwhelmed. Listen, beloved, he wants you to fight, but he's not gonna let you become mortally wounded, okay? In fact, let me show you a couple scriptures to support that so that we have the true interpretation of this passage. Would you look over in 1 John chapter 2 for a moment? And when I say that, I, I could say, listen, if you don't interpret this right, I could scare the jeebies out of you. That you're battling a foe that you can't see. That you're battling this present darkness that is before you. That he's before you as a roaring lion, and the Bible says that. But you have to understand that if you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God that was last week. And in this prayer, to be kept from the evil one, it's not like the evil one can suck you up and spit you out and you can bear some mortal wound. No, no. He's just in prayer for that. He's praying for that. He's praying that you would be delivered. Remember in Luke 22, when Jesus came to Peter and he said, Satan has desired to what? Sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that when you've failed, you will return again to strengthen your brothers. Listen, I want to make sure I give you the true interpretation. What can separate you from the love of God? Nothing, not height, nor depth, nor any other thing can. So he's praying for your protection while you live in the midst of this world. Look at 1 John 2. He says in verse 14, 1 John 2, 14, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to him, young, to you young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and I like this phrase, you have overcome the evil one. In other words, there's already a sense that you've overcome the evil one based on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, look up at verse 12, 1 John 2, 12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins, past tense, 
are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. And now this phrase, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. There is a real sense here that you've already overcome the evil one by your faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, look down at 2.15. You know this by heart. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he's saying you've already overcome the evil one, not in your own strength, but based in your union with Jesus Christ. Now, it's very interesting in this context, remember this in verse 19, and all of this is on tape. It says in 2.19, they went out from us, because you know people like this, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you, he says to believers, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you will have, you have, or you all have knowledge. In other words, we've overcome the world. Look over at 1 John chapter 5. He says something very similar there. He says, you say, well, how have we overcome? Well, this. 518, we know that everyone, not most, not many, but everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And the point is, I've said this a hundred times to you, doesn't mean that you and I don't sin. We sin weekly, daily. Okay, and we confess our sins, and he's faithful to forgive us all righteousness, but here the text says he does not keep on sinning as a way of life, as a practice. He's not talking about, as I've said before, sinless perfection. He's talking about the direction of your life. He says that everyone, look at it again, who's born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God... It says, it says, born of God protects him, and now this phrase, and the evil one does not, what? Touch him. So then if the evil one cannot touch you, then what is this prayer of protection? Here, the protection has as its results that the evil one does not, we know from this text, touch the man who was born of God. And so he can't do anything to separate you from the love of God, but he can do damage to your life if you walk in disobedience to them. In fact, look back at John 17. He makes this very clear. He says, they, speaking of the people whom the Father gave, they in 17, 16 are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So he is praying to the, to the Father on behalf of the disciples, both the 11 and us, that the evil one, yes, he is present, but he's saying, Father, I am about to shed my blood for them. Let not the evil one attack them. In just a few hours, short hours, by way of his death and his resurrection, he would deal a fatal death blow, if you will, to Satan himself. And so the question would come is, can Satan overpower us? Can he do anything to tempt us, to rob us of our salvation? And the answer is no. Listen, you say, Scott, why do you say that? If we were left to our own we would be crushed, right? I mean, if it was just up to us and our keeping, we would be overwhelmed by Satan and demons in this vile world. But beloved, we are in Christ. 
2 Corinthians 2.14 says, we always triumph in Christ. And so he's praying for the people the Father gave him. He's praying for the protection in this world. In other words, he can't deliver the death blow to you. He's praying that we would not be overwhelmed in circumstances. And this leads to the third thing that he prays. He prays for our purity in the world. He prays for our purity in the world. This classic text, look at it in 1717. He said, sanctify them, this is prayer, in the truth, your word is truth. So thirdly, he's praying for our purity in this corrupt world. This is how you could pray for your kids, certainly. This is how you can pray for your grandchildren. This is how the Lord Jesus Christ prayed to his Father. Father, sanctify them. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. In other words, that's his prayer. He is not praying for their happiness. He is praying for their holiness. Sanctify them. We can talk about that word. I think you understand it. But it, he's, he's praying for our sanctification, if we just use that as a word, which means that he's praying for your holiness. So what, is, what, what does that mean? What is he, he's praying sanctify them in the truth. He's praying in this prayer that I would say this, that you become more like Christ. That's his prayer. He's taking you out of the world, but you're left in it. And you're left then on a mission to be holy, to become more like Christ. That word sanctify is just simply the word for holy. You know what holy means. Holy always probably involves two concepts. One, to be utterly set apart. In other words, it to be set apart from what's common, to be set apart from what's earthly, to be set apart from what's worldly. You are set apart from the world in which you live. You're dedicated, if you will, okay? That's negatively. But positively, not only do you set yourself aside from the world, but you dedicate yourself positively unto God, in other words, this is the life of the believer. Far from getting caught up in the world and doing what the world loves, the, the believer doesn't live in this world. You've been saved out of this world. You've been born again. He's renewed your heart, and now he's praying that you would be pure, that you would become more like Christ, that you would be dedicated to God for service. Scripture says that God is holy, and you know that in 1 Peter 1.16, it tells you to be holy. You say, what does that mean? Is it externals? No. He's telling you to be like Christ, to talk like Christ, to look like Christ, to, to dress in ways that honor Christ, to speak in ways that honor Christ, that you have been set apart from the world, dedicated unto God. Now, obviously, beloved, this is a lifelong process, is it not? We will not be totally holy until we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a theological understanding, he's justified you, okay? He's declared you righteous. He's sanctified you, both positionally to see you holy. He's praying here practically that you would be holy. And then one day, he's gonna glorify you. But he's praying that while you're in this world, sanctify them in the truth, Father. Your word is truth. So he brings us here to the means of our sanctification. Look at it in verse 17. You say, I want that, Scott. I want to be more like Christ. I don't want to live like the world. I'm here this morning. I want to be in the hearing of the word of God. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Here is the means to sanctification. It is the word of God. 
He's praying to the Father that you would be sanctified. And not only is he making that his prayer for you to be holy, he's providing you the means to be holy by giving you the truth. You say, well, what's the truth? Well, the truth is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, right? The Word was with God. The Word was God. And uh, the Word, He is the Word. We understand that. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. But here, truth, look in the context. In 17, would you just look at this? In verse 8, He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me. In other words, God's Word is the truth. Look down at verse 14. I have given them your word. Now verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. The truth is God's word. It's the Father's word. Scripture then, beloved, you know this, is the means by which sanctification, the means by which holiness is achieved. You say, well, how, how are we made more holy? You are made more holy by the renewing of your mind, by the word of God. In Psalm, do you remember where it says in Psalm 1 that he delights in God's word? How blessed is that man who delights in God's word and on his law he does what? Meditate day and night. Your likeness to the image of Jesus Christ will be in direct proportion to the truth that is going into your heart and into your life. Here in the psalmist said, he's meditating day and night. Meditating means to ponder. It means to to recall is the idea. It means to consider. The psalmist adds there, day and night. He is talking about the continual, perpetual intake of God's word. The psalmist said in 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You know Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Listen, God has accomplished the means for you to be holy. It is on the regular intake of the word of God. That's the truth of scripture. You know Psalm 119.9 How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your, what? Word. In other words, the means of holiness, the likeness of Christ, the conformity of Christ comes as you glance at the word of God in the mirror, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and you become transformed from one state of glory to the next. Peter, do you remember in 1 Peter 2.2 said, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I can't tell you what a joy it is to my heart to to pull in. I mentioned this the other week on Thursday and there was nearly 200 women and kids here for Bible study. And not everybody can go to that, but I'll tell you, between the wives and the children that are there, it's amazing what God's doing in our midst. What that tells me is there's an insatiable thirst in this body, amongst our women, amongst our men, for the word of God. Listen, we're always going to uphold the word of God. Why? Because not only is it, it, it truth, but it's the truth that changes our life. Long, he says, for the pure milk of the word of God that you may grow in respect to salvation. The psalmist said in 119, 111, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against thee. You will be a product of the intake of this world. If you listen to the world, if you listen to the world's music, if you listen to the world's cadence, you'll become like the world. You'll talk like the world. You'll dress like the world. You'll act like the world. You'll want the world's friends. But for a believer, he or she is born again. And they've stored up the word 
in their heart that they might not sin against you. So here, he's praying for our purity in the world, and purity comes through the means that he's provided the word of God. Certainly, we don't even have to turn to this. Do it by heart. Be not, 12.2 of Romans, conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind that you may know what's pleasing and acceptable to, don't be conformed. And in fact, Paul gets done with all the mercies you know in 1 through 11, all the mercies that he listed, all the things that he listed. And he says, listen, I don't want you to be conformed. And the word for conformed there in Romans 12 too, is the word for a poser, for an imitator. It's, it's someone who is posing as someone. He says, listen, don't be shaped like the world. Don't be put in the world's mold I always remember when I went to the L.A. Zoo, I think I've told you this before, but I used to go to the L.A. Zoo as a young kid, and I always would make my mom and dad take me to those wax figures, the machines that you can hit, put the money in, they're pretty expensive, and then you hit the number of animal that you want, and then you could watch this machine begin to pour the wax liquid that come down a tube and it would make a gorilla or it would make a tiger or it would make an elephant. It would be putting it in its mold and it would squeeze it and then you'd have to wait and be patient so that the mold and the wax took, if you will, and then all of a sudden it would release it and out it would come and there you'd have your wax figure. Paul is saying to you, that whatever the world does, we ought to look a little different than that. You've been, actually, in your position, saved out of it. So don't become conformed to it. No, he says what to, this to us, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind on the mercies that have just been presented, the mercies of God, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I love that word transformed. It's the, it's the I can tell you this, it's the Greek word metamorphosthai, which we obviously get our English word metamorphosis from. Don't be squeezed into the world, high school students, college students, adults, no, 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 you need to be transformed. You need to be metamorphosized, if you will, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, beloved, I'm just saying to you, you've got to get intake in the word of God. You've got to study the word. You've got to read the word. I'm pleading with you. I know that one of the, the biggest things that made a difference in my life as a young man is when I heard a Bible teacher say that he read five chapters a day for 30 days in a row. I thought, wow, that sounds good. So I just picked up 1 John and began to read the whole book in one day. Big deal, 20 minutes. And as I began to read over 1 John every day for 30 days, it just so infiltrated into my mind the truth of God's word that it was renewing me daily. Then when I finished 1 John, I went over to a gospel. I didn't read the whole gospel. I read six, seven chapters at a time for 30 days in a row. And what I begin to see in my own life is the transformation taking place because my mind was being renewed. And when I was being renewed, I wasn't being conformed. I was being transformed so that I would understand the will of God. High school students, junior high students, adults, grandfathers, you've got to have this kind of intake. So Jesus is praying. He's praying for our purity in the world, and he's provided the means to be sanctified in the truth. And obviously, this is why we, we study the truth and preach the truth. But let me just ask you one final question. Why did he leave you in this world? I mean, I'm just being honest. I mean, you know, some people just want to get out of this world for many reasons. Elijah wanted to leave it. Moses wanted to leave it. And there was one other Bible character. It was Jonah, those three. They just take me, Lord. I mean, heaven's a lot better than this place. 
But there's a final point here. He not only prays for the people the Father gave him, he prays for our protection. Thirdly, he prays for our purity. But fourthly, he prays for the purpose of sending us into the world. I was stunned by this. Look at verse 18. He says there, as you, remember he's praying to his father, sent me, father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, what? Into the world. He's praying for the purpose of sending us into the world. Far from taking you from the world, I've asked not that you be taken out of the world, but you be kept from the evil one. And now he gives you, I'm going to call it mission. As God the Father has sent me, and I have 30 verses, but we've studied those for a few years. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You say, why am I left here? Maybe the dendrites were right. Maybe the grazers were right. Maybe Simeon Stylites had a point. He just climbed on top of a pillar. Oh, no. He's wanting you to be pure so that you can be sent. He's wanting purity in our hearts so we might have purpose in this life. We are on a mission. As the Father sent me, I've sent you. Just glance back at chapter 15 one moment. We've seen this before in 1526, speaking of the Holy Spirit, 1526, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. So not only did the Father send the Son, but the, the Son sends to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, 1526, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. We understand that. He makes Christ known. But how about this? And you also will what? Bear witness. He's called you to make a difference. So, beloved, let me say this to you. Holiness is not an end in itself. It's not. And I think we grasp that. It's a means to the end. Holiness prepares you for mission in the world. That's why it's important to be holy. Holiness is not the end. It's actually preparing you to be on mission in this world is the thought. John, Jesus said in 2021, 2021 is the Father sent me. Even so, I'm sending you. We know from the Beatitudes, he said, you are the lights of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He's told you to go and make disciples of all nations. He said in Acts 1.8, you shall be my, what? Witness. Listen, he's going to use holy people in the process. Remember when Isaiah encountered the holiness of God? And he saw God in all his beauty, God in all his glory, God in all his majesty. He heard the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. They're crying out an antiphonal praise at the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. And then he sent one of them to go grab the, the tongue and the altar on the altar and go grab a coal. And he sent it over to Isaiah and he cleansed his Lips from it. And then you remember what Isaiah prayed? Here am I. What? Send me. Listen, he doesn't want us to go hide. He doesn't want you to go hide. He doesn't want you to crawl into a holy huddle and remove yourself from this place. Somebody shared the gospel with my parents when I was a full-on pagan. They told him the good news. He wants to use families and individuals and singles and men and women. So I'm going to ask you again, do you live in isolation? Or do you live in assimilation that you've become part of the world? Like that you're dating someone who doesn't know Christ, you're dating the dead and you're compromising. So do you live in isolation? Do you live in, do you live in assimilation to the world or do you live on mission? Listen, for some and I'm just sharing my heart with you, it is possible, and you agree with me on this, to be born to Christian parents, praise the Lord for that, to grow up in that Christian family, to have Christian friends, to go to Christian schools, 
to go to Christian colleges, to read Christian books, to attend a Christian country club. That would be the local church. Um, In some, right? To watch Christian movies, to get Christian employment, to be attended, if you will, by a Christian doctor, and finally even die and be buried by a Christian undertaker on holy ground. This is true. What a reversal of the biblical command to be salt, to be light. You say, well, Scott, what can I do? Well, you can begin to pray. You can begin to ask the Lord that you would be on mission, that you would pray for opportunities. Now, the final thing here, look at verse 19, amazing. He says there, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. Same word for consecrate, translated different. I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What's the point here? He's just saying, if you can see it this way, for their sake, and that's a tremendous Greek word. It means on behalf of them, on behalf of them, on behalf of them. He said, for their sake, on their behalf. Now, he's not talking about gaining holiness. He's already been called the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's not sinned. But he's talking about here, for their sake, I dedicate myself and Obviously, he's talking about in this context, his death on behalf of others all throughout the gospel of John. So he consecrates himself, he dedicates himself to obey the Father's will, to obey the Father's will that namely he would go to his, his death so that we might have life. You say, well, why did he do that? Well, certainly not for greater holiness. As I mentioned, he was already sinless. He dies for us. He needed to live, beloved, a perfect, holy life. Why? Because he only, we needed a perfect, at least one perfect, holy life lived by someone in the history of the world, and he's the only one. You say, well, why is that important? Well, because when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, his perfect life is credited to you. It's as if you lived his life. That's what we call the doctrine of imputation. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become, what? The righteousness of God through him. You say, what's the point here in verse 19? He said, I dedicated myself to my father's will. I went obediently and humbly to the cross. And he said, that I did, that they might also be sanctified in the truth. Listen, beloved, he's provided everything for you. By laying his life down, he also sanctified us. How so? He cleansed us from sin. He separated us from the world. He set us apart to witness in this world. So listen, is it isolation? Is it assimilation? We'd say no. It should be missional, if you will, that we've got a great purpose to go out and live. Amen? Let's be those kind of men and women.